0: If you'd open your Bible, the book of Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. And the subject this morning is marriage. Made in heaven or marred by hell? Made in heaven. Which kind of marriage do you have? Made in heaven or marred by hell? I preached on marriage a few weeks ago with the idea of marriage. positioning ourselves, our ministry here on the so-called gay marriage issue. But today, in the study of that message, I ran across so much material, I thought, boy, it's been a while since I preached on marriage. And so I would like to today talk to you about this. Marriage made in heaven or marred by hell. In the book of Matthew chapter 19, and if you would stand with me as we show our respect to God's Word this morning and follow as we read a few verses, Matthew 19 verse 1, and it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, He departed from Galilee, and He came into the coast of Judea beyond Jordan, and great multitudes followed Him, and He healed them there. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every or any cause? And Jesus answered and said unto him, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and cleave to his wife And they, twain or two, shall be one flesh. And wherefore they are no more two, but one flesh. And what therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. And you may be seated. Adrian Rogers said, The family is the only part of the Garden of Eden that still remains. What a good and true statement. The only hope you have of a lot of paradise in this life is if you have a good Christ-centered family. The family is the only part of the Garden of Eden that still remains today. And yet I know that Satan has turned all of his artillery on this institution that we call family, that we call Home. And all the artillery of hell is pointed at your marriage and at your family today, my friend. Government policy has become to a great extent anti-family and anti-marriage. And the culture itself no longer values marriage. It's not the highest value for us. In the King James Version of the Bible, which I use, there are 31,102 verses in the whole Bible. And if I look up in my concordance the number of times it refers to marriage, it's interesting, only about 19 different references to marriage. If marriage is so important, why don't we see it mentioned more frequently in the Bible? Listen closely, I want you to get that. If marriage is, is as important as I'm going to preach that it is, why isn't it mentioned only 19 in 19 verses out of over 31,000 verses? Well, I'll tell you why you don't see it mentioned more is because as they just sung so beautifully, the theme of the Bible is redemption. The theme of the Bible is personal and individual redemption. People getting right with God and getting the Holy Spirit into their life. Well, so the message of the Bible is you live your life according to the Word of God. You come to know Christ and have a relationship with Him. And then after you know Christ, you live your life to please the Lord and you live it to be in obedience to the Scripture. And here's the reason you don't need more teaching on marriage in the Bible is because if you will do those things I've just described, then most of your marriage problems will resolve. And if you end up with a message that has been marred by hell and there's all kinds of trouble in that marriage, I can tell you this, somebody, one or maybe even both, are not living a life that a redeemed child of God should be living when… Jesus Christ is central, and both parties are close to Him. By definition, both of them will be close to Him. If both of you will say, I'm going to give my life to being close to the Lord, I'm going to obey Him him and live for Him, then by definition, two things that are close to the same thing are going to be close together, are they not? And so you're going to be drawn together by the very fact that you live for the Lord. And, and so, there's so many principles in the Bible, they may not, the word marriage might not be in the context, but the idea is certainly applicable to marriage. For example, in the great commandment, the, Lord, the Bible says that we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. I used that one day in counseling a young couple. Do you know what the Bible says? It says to love your neighbor as yourself. And they looked at me sort of blank, and I said, have you ever considered who's your nearest neighbor? Well, it's not the guy that lives in the house next door. It's the one who sleeps in the same bed. And so that means I'm to love my wife or I'm to love my husband as I love myself. That will take care of about 90% of the counseling that we do around here, wouldn't it? If everybody here would love your spouse, love your neighbor, your closest of all neighbors, love them like you love yourself, well, then most of our marriage problems would be resolved. Now, God is the divine architect of marriage. Marriage didn't come along as some cultural innovation. It was God who thunked up the idea of marriage. It was God who came up with the plan, and He is the great designer God's God's design for marriage is found in your Bible, and I promise you it will work if you will work it. Marriage, we know, is the oldest institution that we have today. It's also the closest relationship you will ever have with anybody on earth. I would also say it's the absolutely most important thing in your life, You ought to value your marriage more than you do your bank account or your business, more than anything else. That marriage is valuable, should be valuable to me as a Christian, and it's valuable in the sight of God. And the other thing about marriage is, generally speaking, unless someone dies very prematurely, it's life's oldest and longest-lasting relationship. So the closest relationship the most important relationship, the longest lasting relationship, the oldest institution is marriage. And so, I speak to you today about that marriage that was made in heaven. Now, marriage can be life's most satisfying relationship, or marriage can also be life's greatest trial. And I don't know where you are in your marriage today. Is it the greatest blessing or is it the greatest trial? But here in Matthew chapter 19, the Lord Jesus is giving us his teaching on marriage. And in verse 4 and 5, I read six verses, but in 4 and 5, he said to the Pharisees who came testing and tempting and probing him, he said, have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? He quotes that from the book of Genesis, chapter 1, I think, verse 27. So he's Jesus' teaching on marriage is a quotation from the book of Genesis. Then he continues from another place in Genesis, chapter 2 and verse 24. He says, for this cause, for this reason, marriage... A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. So someone says in this current debate here about gay marriage in our country, well, Jesus never said anything about gay marriage. Oh, yes, Jesus did. You're wrong on that one. Look at the end of verse number 4. And he told you who the eligible parties are for marriage, a male and a female. So Jesus did speak on marriage, who the eligible parties, the participating parties should be in a marriage. So let's talk here for a few moments about a marriage that's made in heaven, a marriage like Jesus was describing, a marriage like, boy, I pray and hope that you will have or already have. First of all, let's define marriage. What is marriage? Because there's so many opinions, and the whole gay gay marriage debate has brought out a a consideration of the definition of marriage. What is marriage? I want to biblically define marriage for you. Marriage is, first of all, a covenant. So if you're taking down notes with me, note that. Marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman and God. There are three parties in a biblical marriage Don't ever say it's just a covenant between a man and a woman. That's the secular world's view. But if you're a Christian today, marriage is a covenant between heaven and between the two of you, between God, a man, and a woman. In fact, I can give you three words they all begin with C. You might want to write them down. I'll help you remember them. Three words and when you've said that, you've said about everything that can be said about marriage. Marriage is a covenant. Number 2, marriage is a commitment. It's a commitment. It is it should be and if you're a Christian, it is the most important and the strongest commitment you will ever make in your life. Marriage is a covenant. A covenant is an agreement between two or more people. A covenant between God and the two parties, the man and the woman. And secondly, marriage is a commitment. And thirdly, marriage is a companionship. A companionship. It is the closest, dearest person to you throughout life. Now everything that I'm going to say in the rest of the message will fall under one of those three C's. It's either a covenant or it's a commitment or it's a companionship that we have together as marriage partners. We go back when when they asked the question of Christ about marriage. In their mind, in the context, the history of that day, they were thinking of something like this. And there's a word that they thought about that we don't use today. A Jewish wedding had something called the ketubah, K-E-T-U-B-A-H. What was the ketubah? The ketubah was a, an agreement. In fact, the word in Hebrew means a written thing, a written thing. And to protect women in those days, and you'll hear ignorant people say, oh, the Bible didn't care anything about woman, you, women. You're wrong again. It does. And in those days, to, com- to protect the rights of a woman, when a young Jewish man and woman were preparing to get married, the man signed something called the Katuba, the written agreement. These are actually written out. This is a, looks like a document. It was a legal document of the day. And if you'll look online or somewhere and put in the word ketubah, you'll see pictures of ketubahs that have survived from antiquity. Beautiful, beautiful documents that they framed and hung on the walls in their houses 2,000 years ago. The tradition is that old. What was the ketubah? The man signed an agreement that if he married this wife, he would provide for her food and shelter and clothing and clothing and clothing and clothing. clothing. (laughs) I'm just speaking from experience. Now I'm in trouble. Lordy mercy. Norman and I have been happily married for 48 years until today. I just blew it. I can always remember it's 48 years, or was it 47? It's either the year before or the year after Tory was born. I can't. Now that I have your attention. The ketubah, this young Jewish male signed this thing, and he said, I'll provide for her food and clothing and shelter and emotional support. I'll be there for her no matter what happens. We will be the closest. And then he had to bring two witnesses who were not a part of the family, and they signed the ketubah. And, they, and before the marriage ceremony was ever held, he went and presented the ketubah to the bride-to-be, the agreement, I'll provide these things for you. Now, that was a covenant, and uh, it's referred to in the book of Malachi, chapter 2. Just turn back. Malachi's one book back if you're not used to those Old Testament manner prophets. So, Malachi, chapter 2, verse 14, the Lord hath been witness between you and your wife, the prophet said, the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet, she is your companion, and she is the wife of your covenant. And so you have those two words in one verse, companionship and covenant relationship. They couldn't live together under Jewish law until the husband signed the ketubah, the covenant of marriage. So what is marriage? Marriage is a covenant. And some people say, well, marriage is just that sexual relationship. The marriage has to be consummated. That's the act of marriage. No, it's not. No, it's not. The marriage is a covenant which gives them the right to have the sexual relationship, but you don't build the marriage on just sex alone. It's this mutual covenant And so, the young couple stand before the pastor or whomever, and they make those covenant agreements, and that's a scriptural thing, Malachi 2 and 14. Jesus said in here something else that we've used many, many times. We use it in our counseling. I use it in messages every time I preach on marriage because I know that people either don't understand or forget or are not listening or whatever. I was talking with a man who's a really spiritually mature gentleman here in our church, and we were talking the other day about marriage. And he said to me these words You know, Genesis 2 24 and Matthew chapter 19 and verse 5 say just about everything that can be said about marriage. God, in his infinite wisdom, condensed it into those verses. Look at verse 5, quoting Genesis 2 24. A man shall leave his father and mother, and he shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. And three words there say it all leaving and cleaving and one flesh. And so Jesus taught these three concepts that will make your marriage a marriage made in heaven. And if you violate them, it will be marred by hell and evil itself, number one, your marriage is your priority that's what he was saying in verse five. Leave, leave. your marriage is your priority in life. Your parents are no longer the priority in your life. Your marriage, your mate, your spouses your your new partner. I know marriages in this church that fail because Children won't leave, in some cases because the parents won't let them leave more often, particularly with girls. She'll always be daddy's little girl, and he will defend her even when she's wrong. Parents, you let them leave. That's what the Bible, that's what Jesus Christ said. They are to leave. That doesn't mean they have to move to Atlanta It does mean, though, that you can't dabble and interfere and make their decisions for them. It primarily has the idea if they leave emotionally, they no longer depend upon mom and dad. They depend upon their spouse. They transfer their dependence from mom and dad and their birth family unit to a brand new family unit that's formed, and mom and dad stay out of it. we end up with a lot of problems here simply because mom and dad trying to run the home. Yes, you have more experience. Yes, in my infinite knowledge, I could help them sometimes and they don't ask for it. But God said you let them leave. You encourage them to leave. You stay out of that. If you don't, they will never learn. Parents, that's hard to do. It's hard for me to do. I had a preacher friend. He said, I stood up there at the altar. My daughter came down that aisle. Man, she was a beautiful girl. Oh, she had on that white dress, and her hair had been fixed all day long. Oh, she was the most gorgeous creature I ever saw in my life. And she came down there, and there that boy stood that she's getting ready to get married to. And he said, then I married them with tears running down my face, and they walked back up that altar. And he said, Bill, it was like putting a Stradivarius in the hand of a gorilla. <laughs> but you've got to put the Stradivarius in the gorilla's hand. And you leave. You stay out of it. Leave. They are establishing a new family. That's priority. Priority. Number two, the marriage is permanent. Jesus said a marriage is permanent. at word cleave. Like they're glued and nailed together so much so they can never be brought apart. Let me tell you something our culture has taught people. Well, if it doesn't work out, you can do it again. I want to tell you, for a serious Christian, divorce is not an option. For a serious Christian, divorce is not an option. Now, I will quickly say the Bible permits divorce if there's fornication, if there's desertion, 1 Corinthians 7 and 15. Yes, there are situations where divorce is approved in the Scripture. It's not encouraged in the Scripture. It's always better for reconciliation. But the Scripture allows it. Jesus said here, for the hardness of your hearts, down in verse 8. Sometimes sin is so egregious and so much damage has been done that uh, the Bible does permit it. But here's the point. It's not an option. If you're going to work on a marriage that's broken, get that off of the table and get it off of the table first. I've wasted months of my life talking to people who in the back of their mind, they didn't have any serious intention to solve their problems they were thinking, "Well, if this doesn't work, I'll get a divorce." And here, here's the point: as long as there's an option to get out, there will not be that wholehearted commitment that's needed. Let me say it again: as long as there's an option to get out, the commitment will—you'll be, be pulling your punch. The commitment won't be hundred percent. Close your mind to that option. That's and, 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 except in very unusual circumstances. Divorce is not an option, and if it is, you'll be thinking, well, somehow we can get out of this. No, marriage is a lifetime commitment, and so marriage is your priority, no matter how long you've been married, as long as I have, or you just got married six months ago, your marriage is your priority, and your marriage is your is permanent. And the third P here is your marriage has a purpose. In fact, it has two purposes. Purpose number one, to reproduce, to be fruitful and multiply. Now, I'll give you a little bit. This is marginally an opinion, but it's still, you know, it's true. <laughs> Here's, the Lord said multiply. You haven't multiplied if you have one. One. You haven't multiplied if you have two. Multiplication kicks in at three. So, um, y'all just take that home and smoke on that a while. (laughs) And, And we laugh that off. Let me tell you what's happening. The birth rate is so high in the Muslim world And the birth rate is so high in Latin America and among Hispanic, the Hispanic cultures that you know what? The people that founded this country are becoming a minority. And the birth rate is so low in America that when Social Security started out, there were 13 people paying into the system for one person to retire. And right now, it's three to one And within 10 years, it'll be two to one because we ain't having any babies. We've decided one is enough or two is enough or none is enough or whatever. And I'm not applying that to anybody here individually, but I'm just telling you, as a culture, our birth rate has fallen to the lowest level it's ever fallen to in Western Europe, and in the United States. So God says, I want you to have some babies, however many he gives you. And so the purpose of marriage, marriage is your priority, marriage is permanent, and marriage has a purpose, to reproduce the species. And secondly, companionship. Genesis 2 and 18, just jot that over there in your margin, but it is not good that man be alone. It's not good So the Bible is for marriage as defined here Now God's arithmetic is a little different than ours Look at chapter 19 again And verse number 5 They shall be one flesh And so here's God's marital arithmetic Marital arithmetic is this One plus one equals one One plus one equals one. God says, here you are, a male, a female, a man, and a woman, and you come together not to be two, but to be one. There is this unity that's emphasized, one flesh. One flesh means physical unity, and I talked about that in the last message. The conjugal union, we call that. Conjugal means joined together. The man and the woman are joined together in one flesh. The heart of marriage, of course, we know is the sexual union. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse number 4. Marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers God will destroy. So he says the place for sex is within the marriage bond. And uh, the Bible limits it. To that, but it's a wonderful thing. Our Creator made us sexual creatures. He designed the male and the female body to be complementary and and correspondent. And so the Bible makes a strong case for this physical unity, the marriage bed. And it talks in 1 Corinthians, there's a whole chapter on neither party depriving the other party of that part of that marital relationship. But in God's marital arithmetic of 1 plus 1 equals 1, it's not only a physical relationship, but secondly, it's an emotional relationship. It's companionship again. It is not good for the man or the woman to be alone. And so God said, I'll make a help meet. And the word help meet there has the idea of a companion. And so your marriage partner ought to be your best friend on the whole earth. Are you all friends when you're married? Well, you, you were good friends before. <laughs> kind of close when you could be, weren't you? Well, why not that continuing? Marriage, your marriage is your emotional support base. There's one person I can always count on to encourage me, and that's my wife, Norma. Boy, she's good at that. You don't realize how much that means to me. But you talk to Norma, I've never preached a bad sermon because she's my friend. She's my closest one on this earth. And it's always got to be like that. She's my most loyal friend. She is my most trusted person. She trusts me and I trust her. We don't have two bank accounts because we're one flesh. We don't seek independence because we're one. We're one. That's the way it's got to be on everything. We're one economically, we're one emotionally, we're one physically. And so I love her. We trust our spouse. Boy, so much of the counseling we end up having to do is because trust has been broken down, but one partner has proven, or maybe both in some cases, have proven not to be trustworthy. Are you trustworthy? So your partner can have absolutely uh, no fear of you ever betraying them on anything. You're trustworthy. Are you kind? And all of us have those moments when we're irritable, when we bite at somebody. And too often, it's not the people in our public life out in business. It's that one that loves us most, and we snap at them. But that's that's wrong. That's wrong. That person, if I'm going to have that emotional closeness and that true companionship, I've got to love my wife or husband. I've got to always be kind to them. If I snap at them, I ask their forgiveness and I make it right very, very quickly. I've got to be understanding. I've got to listen to them. I am the primary, my responsibility is to be the primary encourager of Mrs. Norma Monroe. And her responsibility is to be a PRIMARY ENCOURAGER OF HER her, her HUSBAND, BILL MONROE. IT'S LIKE THIS, NORMA, I HAVE YOUR BACK. AND BILL, I HAVE YOUR BACK. AND IT DOESN'T MATTER WHAT'S HAPPENING, I'LL BE THERE WITH YOU. THAT'S WHAT I MEAN BY EMOTIONAL UNITY, THE SOURCE OF ENCOURAGEMENT. Look again at that passage in Malachi 2.14. She is thy companion, companion, the closest, most trusted, most encouraging relationship. I owe it to my spouse. And then there's a third source of unity for the Christian marriage, that one flesh relationship, and it's a spiritual part of us, the spiritual union. And so the physical union is conjugal, the emotional union is companionship. The spiritual union is convictions. We believe the same thing. We have the same faith. We have the same values, and we have the same morality in our life. Second Corinthians chapter 6 says, Don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers meaning a Christian should never marry a non-Christian, no matter how many other good qualities they have. Why? Because at the very core of our being, we're spiritual people. And the Bible forbids me to yoke to form that closest of all relationships with someone who has a different value system, who worships a different God, who has different convictions about their soul. Somebody said if you marry the devil, pardon me, somebody said if you marry an unsaved person, you'll have the devil for your father-in-law. And that's true. You, you, You must have that common unity that comes from both parties loving God, both of us believing His Word, both of us committed to pleasing Him, both the husband and the wife desiring to obey the Word of God in their life, not just half-heartedly, but wholeheartedly, both of us serving Him, both of us with common values of right and wrong. Imagine raising children when one parent has one set of values and another parent has another set of values. It's not going to work. You know that child's going to be a troubled child right out of the gate. And so God says, One plus one equals one. That we leave. That's our priority to form a new family. We cleave. We absolutely are committed for life. And then thirdly, we become one physically. We become one emotionally. We become one spiritually. Always there for each other. Winston Churchill is one of the people I most admire. I've read a couple of different biographies of his life. He was named man of the century for the 20th century because basically, when the war had been lost and everybody had given up over in Europe, Winston Churchill stirred the masses of people together. He said, We'll fight on the beaches, we'll fight with broomsticks if we have to, but we'll throw back Hitler and his minions. And they did. He inspired the nation, they elected him to be the prime minister. He went out of power, and they brought him back and reelected him again to be the prime minister for the second time, and uh, he's viewed today as being one of the great, great minds of that period of time, and he was married to a woman that he dearly loved. Her name was Clementine, and he called her Clemmy. That was his term of affection for his wife, Clemmy, and boy, if he didn't have the absolute ultimate uh, stroke of, of um. Appropriate thing, uh, an appropriate thing to say. A reporter came to Sir Winston Churchill and he said, uh, 55th anniversary of his marriage with Clementine. The reporter said, Mr. Churchill, I'd like to ask you a question. If you were to die and come back, how, what would you like to be in your next life? And Churchill said, Mrs. Churchill's second husband. Was that a stroke of all strokes? Do you think she appreciated that? Absolutely. I've lived one life with her, but if I die, the one thing I could want is not to be the prime minister. I want to be Mrs. Churchill's second husband, second time around. Well, but that marriage that's made in heaven can be marred in hell, and I don't I won't take a long time on this problem part today. But on that wedding day, that young couple stands at that altar. Somebody said their ideals often turn into an ordeal. And if it's not fixed, there's a new deal. And that's a sad, sad little outline from the ideal to the ordeal to the new deal. But too often it happens in our culture today. There's so many forces working against your family. I don't know if you think of these things as anti-marriage forces that Satan has aimed his gun at your family because if he can destroy enough families, he can also destroy an entire culture. And the sexual revolution occurred back in the, Sixties You don't have to wait for marriage Have sex with anyone you want to Became the hooking up culture of our day A grossly immoral culture Sex with no feelings Sex with no responsibilities Sex with no commitments Sex for pure physical pleasure alone And it's destroyed families We teach our young people to be pure I don't care what the world says. Your marriage has a much, much, much better chance of surviving if you've lived a pure life before you got married. There's the acceptance of cohabitation today. We don't need to get married. That's just a piece of paper. It's a man-made thing. No, it's not. It's the ketubah. It's the covenant It is a man and a woman and God making an agreement and a covenant together. It's not just a piece of paper. The paper is irrelevant. It's the commitment from the heart that is so essential and so critical. There's the gay marriage debate, which is attempting to change the very definition of marriage itself to throw away 6,000 years of history, And to jump into a brave new world, so to speak, is not a brave new world, but it may be a house of horrors. It's abortion, anti-family. If we have a child we don't want, we get rid of that child rather than being fruitful and multiplying. It's pornography in all of its many faces and guises. It turns a man's heart away from his wife and causes him to live a life of lust after the bodies of other women. It's the relaxed laws regarding divorce that now it's a no-fault thing. Just sign the papers and wait a few months and walk out. All of these come from ungodly counsel. If there's one verse in the Bible that would sum all that up, it would be Psalm 1. And verse 1, blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Ungodly government policy. Un-government or ungodly governmental policy and ungodly cultural practices that are all around us. It's screaming a permissive message to us about our marriages. Blessed is the man that doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly nor stands in the way of sinners, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, that what God says about marriage is the basis for that marriage. And so that that marriage that was made in heaven can be marred by hell, hellish forces themselves. But lastly... Your marriage can be marked by hope. Your marriage can be marked by hope. Don't give up. I don't care the circumstances. I've seen God do some wonderful miracles putting marriages together. When the partners come before the Lord and humble themselves and say, You know what? God wants us to work this out the moral reality in our world today that so desperately needs to be said over and over is that biblical traditional marriage is good for the children it's good for the spouses it's good for the church it's good for the nation it's good for the world it's it's just good It's God's design and God's plan for marriage. And you today, my friend, you have to decide which voices you're going to listen to. Are you going to get your philosophy of marriage from the world and its philosophy? Or will you listen to the voice of God in the scripture? Will you listen to ungodly friends who are unspiritual who are saying, just ditch him or her? Or will you listen to the voice of God? that which God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. And begin to work and grow and develop maturity as a person, spiritually and emotionally. And God can work through you and solve your problems. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.